Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. <laughs> with me across the table. Matthew Stockton. Hello, everybody. Yeah, look. Creepy Matthew. Creepy Matthew. You've got your little goth outfit on and yeah. uh, your bat wings. I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> and makeup and the whole schmear, so... There you go. Yeah. I'm dressed, dressed as a ghost. I've got a sheet just thrown over it, my head. It's hard to talk with these fake teeth in. Yeah, see? <laughs> Matthew's fake plastic teeth. <laughs> I thought you'd go a little more... Uh, expensive with those but i guess the the fake plastic is more yeah more camp yeah exactly <laughs> camp is christmas the views information and opinions expressed during the dark poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of curious cast its affiliate global news nor their parent company chorus entertainment Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine Halloween style. We are such stuff as poutine is made of. This should be a spooky one. But before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to mention that this is a special episode. But not in the 1980s after-school special kind of way, but special nonetheless. I've been excitedly looking forward to it for a while now. Not only is it our annual spooky-themed Halloween episode, it's also the fourth anniversary of Dark Poutine, as the first show, The Mystery of the Floating Feet, was posted on October 31st, 2017. That was a beginning, albeit a bit shaky. It was a pretty good start. It's been a wild ride ever since with all the attendant ups and downs. To every one of you who have listened to the show over the years, whether you've been with us from the beginning, have just found the show, or drop in from time to time, thank you so much, and happy Halloween. We have chatted about the roots of Halloween in some of our previous special episodes about the celebration. Just a refresher, this is the time of year during which Celtic pagans held the fire festival of Samhain. They believed that the barriers between the physical world and the afterlife are at their thinnest at this time, allowing for more interaction between the living 
and the dead. If you're willing to look, you'll see that human culture and all other endeavors are shot through with one predominant and frightening idea, that one day, everything, including you and me, dear listeners, must come to an end. One day, we will die. You are listening to Dark Poutine Episode 192, Halloween 2021, Death, the Afterlife, and Things in Between. Human beings are, as far as we know, the only animal capable of understanding that inevitably every one of us, good eggs and bad apples alike, will die. We will all, hopefully a long time from now, pass away, be sleeping with the fishes, or if you like, have met our maker. There are so many ways to say someone or something is dead. Some of the most creative I can recall come from Monty Python's parrot sketch. Mr. Praline, played by John Cleese, explains to a contrarian shop owner that the parrot he'd recently bought is dead. The shop owner says that the Norwegian blue, not an actual type of parrot, not dead in its cage, but simply pining for the fjords. Mr. Praline screams, He's not pining. He's passed on. This parrot is no more. He's ceased to be. He's expired and gone to meet his maker. He's a stiff, bereft of life. He rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed him to the perch, he'd be pushing up the daisies. His metabolic processes are now history. He's off the twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off this mortal coil. Run down the curtain and join the bleeding choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. Russian-American novelist and poet Vladimir Nabokov wrote about it in Speak Memory, a memoir. He said, The cradle rocks above an abyss, and common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. End quote. In his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, philosopher William James said, Back of everything is the great specter of universal death, the all-encompassing blackness. James called this idea the worm at the core, a bit of rot in an otherwise amazing apple. This idea of our eventual death is inescapable. While he was a professor at Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver, American cultural anthropologist and author Ernest Becker wrote his 1974 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. In the book, Becker discusses the psychological and philosophical implications of how people and cultures have reacted to the concept of death. He also posits that human civilization is ultimately an elaborate, symbolic defense mechanism against the knowledge of our mortality, which in turn acts as the emotional and intellectual response to our basic survival mechanism. Every single thing we do is informed by that dark bit of knowledge. Every interest we have, all the art we create, even having children to ensure our genes are carried forward, serves our own deepest desire to, as Dylan Thomas put it, rage against the dying of the light, to deny the grim reaper. I've read that Becker book probably about 10 times. I know you've read it a few times as well. Yep, yep. I think that's one of the reasons why we get along so well. We, 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 we like a lot of the same books. It's true. Um, it's, it's fascinating. This whole idea of, he called them immortality projects. 
Yeah. Right. And um, his point was that it, it's not the death of the body that people fear, but the death of meaning. Mm. Right. Because we all have become sort of as these quirky animals with brains, we've become symbols. Right. Versus just animals that are living. What I find really fascinating though is he died just after the book was written mm -hmm. and he won a Pulitzer Prize posthumously for the book. Right. So with his book, The Denial of Death, he denied death. Exactly. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, it is kind of cool. Yeah. And I also like that there's a the Canadian, actually Vancouver connection with him. That, yeah, he died here. Yeah, and he was writing that particular book thanks to experiences he was having at uh, Burnaby General Hospital. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. American author and activist James Baldwin seemed to believe that our fear of death is what causes all of the ills of humanity. In The Fire Next Time, Baldwin wrote, Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death. Have you read much James Baldwin? Uh, no, but I've, I've watched a couple of documentaries about him. I've read a little bit of his stuff and I find him so compelling. He's amazing. My, my favorite quote from him was, um, it's about racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said, uh, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with pain. Right. It gets me every time. Like he's a, he yeah. was a fascinating man, a contemporary of Malcolm X. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a friend of uh, Maya Angelou as well. Although in Western society, at least, today's children are typically more protected from the concept of death. Historically, though, children began to have an awareness of mortality quite early on, perhaps Thanks to more prominent war and disease, they were surrounded by it. Death was in their consciousness in their fairy tales, the Brothers Grimm, especially, and their original less sanitized tales, and other dark nursery rhymes. Take, for example, the Mother Goose nursery rhyme, Ring Around the Rosy. This rhyme arose from the Great Plague, an outbreak of bubonic and pneumonic plague that affected London in the year 1665. It goes, ring around the roses, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. According to blogs.loc.gov slash folklore, author James Fitzgerald wrote, ring around the roses is all about the great plague, the apparent whimsy being foil for one of London's most atavistic dreads, thanks to the Black Death. The fatalism of the rhyme is brutal, the roses are a euphemism for deadly rashes. The posies are supposed preventative measure. The tissues pertain to sneezing symptoms and the implication of everyone falling down is, well, death. End quote. The elephant in the room for me, and I'm sure for many of you, is that we don't know what happens after death. As a child, the thought of death terrified me. It still does. I became both obsessed and terrified with death and things related to it. 
I devoured stories about ancient Egypt during the day, and then at night I was terrorized by slow-moving mummies lumbering toward me, powerless to escape their relentless pursuit. My fear of death has informed my interest in the afterlife, the occult, horror, and of course, true crime. We all have questions about death and dying. Chief of which to many is, does dying hurt? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, author of what has been called the definitive book on the subject, on death and dying, said, no, death doesn't hurt. She wrote, death is not painful. It is the most beautiful experience you will have, end quote. Well, that's a nice sentiment, but I suspect in some cases it does hurt a lot, or at least the process leading up to it does. Another question is, do you know that you're dying when it's happening? According to Medicine.net, quote, A conscious dying person can know if they are on the verge of dying. Some feel immense pain for hours before dying, while others die in seconds. This awareness of approaching death is most pronounced in people with terminal conditions such as cancer. A person who is approaching death in the next few minutes or seconds will gasp for breath out of air hunger and have noisy secretions while breathing. It's hard to tell what a dying person experiences when they die because that secret goes with them. Even doctors accept the fact that it is difficult to predict when the person is entering the last days or weeks of their life. But what about the people who are survivors of a near-death situation and have experienced what it feels like when they are about to die? A survey was carried out to find out the same. Researchers asked 140 survivors of cardiac arrest cessation of heartbeat and breathing, from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Austria about their near-death experiences. Here's what they found. In total, 39% of survivors reported feeling some kind of awareness while being resuscitated. They felt a peaceful feeling with a sensation that time had slowed down or sped up. A total of 13% said they felt that they were getting separated from their bodies, only 2% said that they were fully aware of what was going on during the resuscitation procedure. I've had my own experiences with death. Most of us have. All of us have had a friend or relative die. Some of us have been to the viewing of a body or open casket funeral. Both traditionally are geared toward giving closure to loved ones after the passing of a family member. I went with my mom to view my nanny's body at Sweeney's Funeral Home in Bridgewater just after her passing in the summer of 2000. It was clear to me that what I was looking at had been my grandmother at one time, but what made her Vera Hall was obviously no longer there. I'm glad I went, but I can't say it's for everyone. Although it helped me to realize nanny was gone, it also reminded me of that eternal question, what happens to us after we die? I'm not talking about scientifically, about our body that eventually decomposes. That's very well known. But my question is about our consciousness, a person's isness, that spark of life that watches our lives from beginning to end, also known as a soul in some religions. Does that thing that makes us ourselves go somewhere? If it does, where is that? How does it get there? Is there some kind of life after death? These are questions still unanswered that have been asked as long as humanity has been aware of its own mortality. Some say that when we're dead, we're dead. There's nothing else. We're just gone. But not everyone can accept that, and it doesn't feel right to me somehow. I'm not alone there. To better wrap our heads around death and what happens directly afterward, many cultures have developed personifications of death, or psychopomps. 
Psychopomps, from the Greek word meaning the guide of souls, are creatures, spirits, angels, or deities in many religions whose responsibility is to escort newly deceased souls from the earth to the afterlife. Here in the West, the specter of death takes the form of a robed, hooded skeleton carrying a scythe, the Grim Reaper, here to harvest our souls and bring us to the world beyond this one. The Reaper finds its roots in Greek mythology. There he was called Thanatos, from Britannica.com. Thanatos was the son of Nyx, the goddess of night, and the brother of Hypnos, the god of sleep. He appeared to humans to carry them off to the underworld when the time allotted to them by the fates had expired. Thanatos was once defeated by the warrior Heracles, who wrestled him to save the life of Alcestis, the wife of Admetus, and he was tricked by Sisyphus, the king of Corinth, who wanted a second chance at life. There are many other representations of death in different ideologies. As part of their creation mythology, Japanese tradition has Izanami. Wikipedia simplifies the story of Izanami, also known as Yomotsu Okami, goddess of the dead. Quote, the Kojiki relates that the Japanese goddess Izanami was burnt to death giving birth to the fire god Hinokagutsuchi. She then entered a realm of perpetual night called Yomi Nukuni. Her husband, Izanagi, pursued her there, but discovered his wife was no longer as beautiful as before. After an argument, she promised she would take a thousand lives every day, becoming a goddess of death. There are also death gods called Shinigami, which are closer to the Western tradition of the Grim Reaper. While commonly in modern Japanese arts and fiction, were essentially absent in traditional mythology. In Celtic tradition, the Irish have the Banshee, from CelticWeddingRings.com, quote, A banshee is said to be a fairy in Irish legend, and her scream is believed to be an omen of death. The scream is also called Cowin, which means keening, and is a warning that there will be an imminent death in the family, and as the Irish families blended over time, it is said that each family has its own banshee. A banshee is a disembodied spirit that can appear in any of the following forms. A beautiful young woman wearing a shroud. A pale woman in a white dress with long red hair. A woman with long silver dress and silver hair. A headless woman carrying a bowl of blood and is naked from the waist up. An old woman with frightening red eyes, a green dress and long white hair. Or an old woman with a veil covering her face, dressed all in black with long gray hair. Well, they seem to have covered all their bases there. There are other fascinating and terrifying examples of psychopomps sent to guide the recently deceased through our transition to the afterlife once we've kicked the bucket. Mut was the personification and messenger of death in the Native American Cahuila people of Southern California and Northern Mexico, and was usually depicted as an owl or as the unseen hooting of owls. The deity Yama in both Buddhism and Hinduism is described as having forearms, protruding fangs, and complexion of storm clouds with a wrathful expression, surrounded by a garland of flames dressed in red, yellow, or blue garments, riding a water buffalo and holding a sword, noose, and a mace to capture dead souls. As well as Thanatos, the Greeks also had the ferryman Charon, Charon carried souls of the newly deceased who had received the rites of burial across the river Styx that divided the world of the living from the world of the dead. A coin to pay Charon for the passage was sometimes placed in or on the mouth of a dead person to pay the ferryman. 
Some authors say that those who could not pay the fee, or those whose bodies were left unburied, had to wander the shores for 100 years until they were allowed to cross the river. Singer and storyteller Chris DeBerg reminds us in his song Don't Pay the Ferryman not to give the fee until he gets us to the other side. Perhaps my favorite psychopomp, if you can have one of those, comes from ancient Egyptian tradition, of course. The jackal-headed deity Anubis, the son of Osiris and Nephthys. According to the Egyptian Book of the Dead as laid out in the ancient papyrus of Ani, Anubis oversaw the process of mummification and it was up to him to judge the worthiness of a person after their death. If judged to be worthy, Anubis guided the recently deceased into the underworld, also known as the Duat, which had only one entrance that could be reached by traveling through the tomb of the deceased. From the academic paper titled The Book of Death Weighing Your Heart by Francesco Corelli, quote, To the traditions, the heart or ib, rather than the brain, was the source of human wisdom and the center of emotions and memory. Because of its apparent links with intellect, personality, and memory, it was considered the most important of the internal organs. It could reveal the person's true character even after death, so the belief went, and therefore, the heart was left in the deceased body during mummification. After burial, Anubis then placed the heart of the dead person on one side of a scale, weighing it against a feather, representing Mat, the goddess of truth and justice, on the other side. The ibis-headed god Thoth, the scribe of Osiris, would record the results on his papyrus. If the scales balanced, it was off to the underworld. If the heart weighed more than the feather of Mat, Anubis tossed it to the monster Amit, who was waiting nearby. Amit, or the devourer of the dead, waited patiently near the scales at every weighing. He was depicted as a fearsome creature representing people-eating creatures from the region with the forequarters of a lion, the hindquarters of a hippopotamus, and the head of a crocodile. I remember when I first learned of this story. It was in a Golden Key Twilight Zone comic book of all places. I think I was mildly traumatized by it. And we'll take a break right here. I think I need one. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Any comments so far on this death-filled episode, Matthew? It's a big subject. It is. It's huge. What I realized, um, and I've mentioned it here in the script, is that I could have done an entire podcast endlessly about this particular topic because I have such an interest in it. Yeah. I mean, I, when I was younger, I had a fear of death, mm -hmm. but I've trained my mind out of it. Yeah. Um, I think Alan Watts, do you know who Alan Watts is? I absolutely know so who I've Alan read Watts. a lot of him. And, yeah. And uh, he said, think about going to sleep and never waking up. Mm -hmm. He says, children, think about it. He said, now think about 
waking up, having never gone to sleep. And that's when you were born. Right. So the experience is the same. So there's nothing to fear because you don't remember anything. Yeah. You know, what I've learned is I'm Matthew, right? Yep. I'm sort of the I, the me, um, this sort of individual. But at the same time, I'm eternal. Mm -hmm. Before you're born, you're there just in different form. Yeah. So I just think of it as a continual process. I'm sort of the universe experiencing itself. Yep. And so, and if you can live sort of straddling that way of thinking, death isn't so scary. Through my research, it seems as though there are as many concepts of afterlife as there have been people to ponder what it might be like. Some believe we simply just come back, reincarnated into the next available body at the moment of conception. Wiccans, for example, believe the recently departed go to a place called the Summerland. Here souls rest, recuperate from life, and reflect on the experiences they had during their lives. After a period of rest, the souls are reincarnated and the memory of their previous lives is erased. Some believe strongly that how you've lived determines where you wind up. There's the glory of heaven for good eggs or eternal torment of hell for the bad apples. I'd rather not step on anyone's spiritual toes, so we'll leave that where it lies. According to Encyclopedia.com, in some cases, quote, the world of the dead is situated on earth, but at a lesser or greater distance away from the dwellings of the living. The Trobriand Islanders, New Guinea, situate the village of the dead in the direct neighborhood of their own villages. The Celtic Turnanog is an island in the far west of the other side of the immense ocean. According to the Tasmanians in Australia, the dead travel to an island nearby where they continue their existence. In parts of the Northern Territory, Australia, the Island of the Dead is situated far off in the direction of the Morning Star. According to the Iwe, Togo, the country of the dead lies a long way off from that of the living on the far side of a river, and the journey to arrive there is difficult and dangerous, end quote. Some cultures believe there's another, more abstract and unseen dimension that our souls travel to after the lights go out. In Norse mythology, the place is called Valhalla, meaning Hall of the Slain, it is a majestic, enormous hall located in Asgard, ruled over by the god Odin. Chosen by Odin, half of those who die in combat travel to Valhalla upon death, led by Valkyries, while the other half go to the goddess Freya's field, Foltfanger. In Valhalla, the dead warriors join the masses of people who have died in combat and various legendary Germanic heroes and kings as they prepare to aid Odin during the events of Ragnarok. If you recognize some of these place names only from Avengers movies, I implore you to read more mythology. The teachings of the Baha'i faith state that the nature of the afterlife is beyond the understanding of those of the living. Just as an unborn fetus cannot understand the nature of the world outside the womb, the Baha'i writings state that the soul is immortal and after death it will continue to progress until it finally attains God's presence. In Baha'i belief, souls in the afterlife will continue to retain their individuality and consciousness and will be able to recognize and communicate spiritually with other souls whom they have made deep, profound friendships with, such as their spouses. There are scientific studies into the existence of the afterlife. The most well-known are those of near-death experiences. 
from Sarah Bartlett's Afterlife Bible. She writes that, quote, most subjects report having NDEs during major surgery or during traumatic events such as car accidents or heart attacks. People who have claimed to have had one most commonly talk of the feeling they experienced during the NDE as still having a body, but of a different nature to the one they left behind. They glimpse the spirits of relatives and friends who have already died. They may approach some sort of barrier or border representing the limit between earthly life and the spirit world. They are usually overwhelmed by intense feelings of joy, love, and peace. Despite this attitude, they reunite with their physical body and continue to live. End quote. Bartlett goes on to write, quote, Since the success of the 1970s book Life After Life by Raymond Moody, publications and the media have been overwhelmed with reports of the afterlife or near-death experiences. This is not just a new fashion for sensationalizing an experience, even though Moody's book did a lot to revive the idea in popular consciousness. It just so happens that our ability to communicate to the media and the world is a little easier than it was even 50 years ago. There have been reports as far back as the 4th century BCE when Plato recounted the story of the myth of Ur, a soldier who died on the battlefield and came back to life to recount his experiences. A tale told of the 1st century CE historian Plutarch reveals how a certain man of ill repute fell from a precipice to his death only to revive three days later at his funeral. End quote. There are the poo-pooers who claim that what people experience in return from is simply a hallucination of a dying brain projected by an overload of serotonin triggered by a lack of oxygen. There's still a lot of research going on. The jury seems to be out on this one. To help me with some of my questions about these things, I thought it would be the perfect time to have yet another chat with longtime friend of the show, paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen. Here's the audio of a recent chat that we had. So let's talk about what we're really here to talk about, which is the afterlife. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, Gee, this, something I've never talked about before. Oh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that you know a lot more about this than I do, which is why I brought you on. Is there any science that comes close to proving that there's life after death? Yeah, actually there, there has been. And, and I think a lot more than what people are willing to talk about really in the mainstream. You know, a lot of this research from universities like Princeton and Oxford and Northampton and places like that have really gone under the radar of public attention, which is so strange because it really is the leading edge of science in, in these uh, these arenas like neuroscience and stuff like that. One place that I think has done just research above and beyond uh, has been the Winbridge Research, uh, research Institute. And um, they've been addressing testing of, of mediums. And I think when we're talking about sort of proof of life after death, because we still don't know for sure what happens after we die, but we can look at certain aspects of, of research and the paranormal and things like that. And I think mediumship is probably one of those places where we can start to look. So, for example, um, the Winbridge Research Center, they basically have the the gold standard of testing for psychic or psi phenomenon, and they test in a few ways. They're looking at ruling out fraud, cueing, raider bias, cold reading, and things like that. And the protocol that they've developed has actually been produced uh, or, or has produced peer-reviewed results and have has been published over the years. So they've been looking at something called anomalous information reception, which is a base, well, it's short for AIR, 
Um, and it can be determined in a number of ways, but they're looking for information that can't be determined through obvious means. So they've come out with some incredible studies. Um, another great example is the American Statistical Association, the, the president there, Jessica Utz. Uh, she determined that psi and psychic functioning actually meets the criteria as well as established and com- as well as established it and basically compared it to tests for things like different medications that we would know, like Advil and things like that, and realized that the scrutiny under which psi goes under and the, the, the testing that it goes under is way and over and above things that we take for granted, like basic medication, which we assume works. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really interesting. The American Psychological Association, uh, a fellow by the name of Dr. Etzel Cardinia from Lund University, he confirmed as well that there is cumulative support for psi. So I think the debate on whether or not it's scientifically proven is is moot at this point. It's just a matter of figuring out what exactly it is. Well, that sort of leads me to my next question. Are these things, these entities, ghosts, are they really the souls of departed people or is there something else that's happening here? And that's such a great question. And I think that's what the the field in and of itself is really looking at right now. And and the answers that they're coming to are, are very widespread. So in this research, we look at something called somatic versus survival psi. So survival psi is that people like mediums or channelers are getting the information from a, a departed soul, so somebody who no longer has a physical body, and that's survival psi. Uh, in somatic psi, it's a little bit different. They use information that is already in the environment to pull information from the environment itself. So things like um, precognition, psychokinesis, all sorts of things that fall into that category. Telepathy, for instance, they're looking at as maybe this is something that they're actually getting from or pulling from the environment and we're projecting it in some way. So there's a couple of different angles, I think, to the the question and the research that they're looking at right now. If there is something out there, are we able to communicate with it in a meaningful way? Yeah, I mean, that's that's so uh, such a prominent question. And I think a question that we've asked for centuries. And, you know, there's been some progress in that arena as well um, from places like the Institute of Noetic Science, um, places like, as a Princeton University, who's been doing a lot of studies. Uh, Yale has just opened a program as well. Um, and a number of others. And, you know, what they're finding is that people who seem to be able to receive or communicate with with non-physical in some way are able to let go. They oftentimes they practice meditation. Um, they're able to get into a relaxed state. They're typically personality wise, they're a little bit more open. They, they pursue and they go into the world with open heart, open mind. They tend to be a bit more extroverted. So there's even characteristics within different people that seem to attract or promote this ability and phenomenon. But um, there was recently a book that was just recently published called uh, The Science of Channeling. And they really began to look at what is it? Can this be done? And, you know, by the end of their studies and, and by the end of, uh, you know, the conclusions that they've drawn, the answer is, yeah, they're, they're pulling information and we have the ability to pull information from someone or something that is not physically present. But what about the amateur, somebody who uh, 
wants to give it a try themselves. Is there specific steps or a method that you can recommend for people who want to at least try? I know we have like Ouija boards and maybe tarot (laughs) and things like that. But are there other things that are a little more scientific in their approach? You know, it's funny because even when you get into the experiments that have been done over the years, whether it be through, you know, trying to create some sort of mechanism that talks to the dead or, you know, whatever method that they have cooked up to use, it always comes back, even in the labs, to things like meditation and the ability to let your emotions raise to a more joyful state, a peaceful state. And that's when people typically experience things coming through and messages and all sorts of stuff like that. Where, But it's, it's really about getting into that allowing state. And it sounds so simple because, you know, here I everybody's saying, well, what do you mean like meditation and all of a sudden I'm going to be talking to dead people and that, you know, that's crazy. But the reality is, is how many people actually make time in their day to make their mind peaceful? Mm. Not very many. And, you know, we've, we live in a society where everything is, is prized on busyness and craziness and, and, you know, coming up with this next idea. But the reality is, is, is probably one of the meth methods in, in, in engaging in non-physical is to be still. That makes sense to me. Uh, I mean, and then perhaps adding something else, you know, like asking via a spirit board or something like that after you're in the right space. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because people think about Ouija boards and and stuff like that and they think, oh, you know, it's such a, it's an evil process and I've had horrible results. And we got to start to look at the energy that you're bringing to the table, exactly like what you just said. You know, the, when you bring an energy to the table that is fearful or worried or angry or anything like that, hands down, you're going to be able to get that back out of your experience with the paranormal. Like that, that's totally what you're going to get back. And most people, when they're about to pick up something like a Ouija board or, or uh, you know, do some kind of seance, they're spooked, they're frightened, um, or they're in grief. Uh, I get a lot of people that will ask me, you know, um, you know, I just lost so-and-so and I really, really want to talk to this person. That's the wrong time to be engaging in this stuff. You know, you've got to get yourself to that positive space and then and meet them where they are, which is pure positive energy. I talked about NDEs, uh, near-death experiences, a little bit as evidence of something other than this realm that we know. Um, what about out-of-body experiences, OBEs? Are they sort of more proof or that consciousness exists apart from or outside of the body or can? Yeah, that's such a great question because out-of-body experiences are are these paranormal experiences that are so close to the near-death experience, but we get to talk to people <laughs> a little bit more commonly afterwards, you know, where people that you know, have passed away or whichever. I mean, you know, we have, we just have to hope that we get a hold of them later. Right. But with, you know, with OBEs, it's, it's different. And I, you know, the Monroe Institute is such a great example of an organization that has gone above and beyond to study this. And it got to the point with them where they were actually for a while working with the CIA, teaching these agents and the military and things like that on how to project themselves and have this out of body experience. So I think the major question that comes up around OBEs and and life after death 
is what they call the hard problem in parapsychology. Is consciousness fundamental or emergent? If it's emergent, then that means that we need our brain to function. We need our physical brain to function. If it's fundamental, then we are translating that consciousness and our consciousness can move around outside of ourselves, which is what the Monroe Institute has has really discovered over the years of, of their work. So, I mean, I think OBEs are really crucial to understanding some of this stuff and can be done in a controlled setting, which I think is even more important. There are a lot of books and even YouTube videos about how to have an OBE. Um, it's It's really fascinating. And I feel like um, some of our listeners might have even had experiences like this because I've talked to many people who feel like they've had an OBE at some time in their lifetime. Yeah, definitely. And what's what's so cool about this is that when you really get into deep meditation, which is oftentimes how these out-of-body experiences start then you can start to experience the feeling of the beginnings of of what people report of of being a out of body experience so there's like you say there's places that you can go to learn to do this the Monroe Institute being one of them i have written here let's talk about the undead ghosts vampires <laughs> and zombies oh my and i don't even know why i wrote that but at the same time i kind of want to address that stuff cuz if you look at a zombie a zombie is supposedly a, a reanimated human uh, corpse with no consciousness, per se. Just this drive to eat other humans, you know, eat their flesh or brains. It depends on which movie you're watching. Um, do you, how do you think culture developed these ideas of ghosts, vampires, and zombies? Do they come from... Uh, our curiosity about the afterlife? You know, it, it depends on where you fall in and what culture you're, you're looking at because all of these different creatures are found in various cultures and they usually have different stories behind them, but they all sort of lean in the same direction. So, for example, like zombies, you know, we, we look at the Haitian culture and the, the roots in, in Africa, West Africa, and things like that but even even the zombie phenomenon was really perpetuated during the slavery times because the 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 slave drivers which were often people who were um uh, uh, slaves themselves would turn around and uh, you know threaten zombification of the people around them and the, the the slaves that they were dealing with they would just say you know they were they were voodoo priests or or whatnot themselves and they would say you know if you don't work the way we want you to work you know, we're going to, you're going to die and you're going to turn into a zombie. So there was a whole bunch of different cultural aspects to whether, whether you're dealing with zombies, vampires, all of that kind of thing. Uh, vampires are a whole kind of different thing. Like if you look, there are people who call themselves vampires and say that they're practicing vampires. Um, I wouldn't say that they are, uh, consider themselves immortal, that they're going to live forever and uh, they're probably able to walk around in the sunshine and go to work and those kind of things. <laughs> but they they have a vampire culture, which is kind of uh, interesting. Um, uh, in, but it all seems to be back to that same idea that uh, within each and every one of us, we have this idea. We know one day... No matter who we are, good, bad, or indifferent, we are going to kick the bucket. Yeah. And and 
you know, we, we look back, especially the vampire culture, it has changed so drastically. You know, whereas zombies and whatnot have kind of so-so remained the same, where with vampires, you look at the original descriptions of vampires and they're disgusting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're nothing like the suave, you know, club-going vampires that sparkle that we see now. You right. know, they're the bloated, gross you know awful looking awful smelling creatures that i mean you just you you drove a stake through their heart because they were bloated and had been feeding on blood you know yeah. they're terrible so i mean vampires are interesting to me specifically because they've done such a cultural turnaround real quick let's talk about supernatural circumstances because people are going to be able to hear that podcast today as well so supernaturalcircumstances.com you can get it on any podcatcher and it's the new podcast that Morgan and myself are doing on circum supernatural circumstances. Do you want to talk about that a little know, bit? Right? It's so exciting. I'm I'm so excited about this. I'm so excited to be able to share this stuff with people because you know there there's there's a plethora of these podcasts out there, these paranormal type discussions out there. And you know, I think what I'm so loving about what we've created here is that it's a mixed bag of information all all angled towards new facts critical thinking and your people's own journey mm -hmm. no matter what you're looking for out of out of the podcast you will walk away with something that you can use yeah for sure so check out supernatural circumstances today on spotify itunes podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Thank you so much, Morgan Knudsen. Some of my own brushes with death have been a bit scary and not at all typical. I've mentioned in a few episodes my time as a gravedigger and work as a security officer at various hospitals here in the lower mainland of BC. I haven't elaborated much, but listeners have repeatedly asked me to talk about my experiences. I can't think of a better time to share them than during a spooky Halloween special death-themed episode. One of the occasions that I saw a dead person was while I was working at the cemetery as a gravedigger. Truthfully, working at a graveyard, you spend more time landscaping than you do digging graves. Many can work their entire career at a cemetery without actually seeing a body. There are a few caskets and some urns, but almost never do you get to see an actual human body. I am not one of those many. Why? because I have participated in an exhumation. Exhumations take place pretty much for one of three reasons. One reason that all true crime aficionados are aware of is that a murder inquiry takes place after a burial and investigators require a closer look at the body, so they need to exhume it for forensic purposes. The second reason is that the family requests that the body is moved. It's not common, but it happens. I'm not sure of the veracity of this story, but it's an interesting one. The veteran cemetery employees that I worked with told me that the year before I started work at Brookside, a man who was moving away from the region wanted to take his deceased wife with him, transporting the coffin in a truck to rebury her closer to his new home in another province. I was told that during the exhumation, one of the canvas straps used when raising the casket broke allowing the casket to fall hard on its side and onto the grass. It apparently popped open and its occupant rolled out, after which there was an argument as to which of the employees would be the one to put the corpse back into the box. 
The third and rarest reason for exhumation is the one that precipitated the uncovering that I was involved in. It is that someone made a mistake. A previous superintendent of the cemetery, who was known for his love of a stiff drink, had made a boo-boo. The story was that somehow, a man we will now refer to as Mr. Smith was buried in the wrong spot beside someone else's wife. It was the deceased woman's family who made the discovery and demanded that the situation be rectified. This might have been the event that had me tasked as a trained draftsman to remapping the entire cemetery with survey instruments to ensure it wasn't repeated. So, one rainy morning, a crew of rain-suit-clad cemetery workers, me included, and a local undertaker were tasked with exhuming and moving Mr. Smith, who'd been there around nine months. Using shovels after a small backhoe did most of the heavy lifting dirt-wise, carefully, we uncovered Mr. Smith's pine rough box, a liner of sorts, used to house a casket in the wet Nova Scotian earth. The lid of the pine box was removed to give access to the casket so the straps could be affixed prior to the backhoes lifting it out of the grave. And that's when the smell hit. Like they say in all those cop shows, it's an odor that once you've experienced it, you'll never forget. One of my co-workers vomited behind a nearby gravestone. The smell was so strong. The straps were put in place and the casket was lifted out. As it came up, bits of the bottom of the wooden coffin bowed outward. Thankfully, the liner of the coffin prevented a disaster that would have included Mr. Smith falling back into the hole. However, in what was a darkly comedic moment, I was taken by the sight of the shape of Mr. Smith's bum protruding through the bottom of the damaged box. The casket was gingerly lowered onto the grass, and to check that there had been no damage to Mr. Smith, the funeral director present opened the casket lid for a peek inside. The smell got stronger, but the sight was not that bad. There in the casket, dressed in his Sunday best, was the well-preserved body of old Mr. Smith, in eternal repose. Modern embalming had done its job. The only defect evident were spots of what looked like cotton balls on his face. I was told by the funeral director that it was a type of post-mortem mold that commonly forms on a body as it decomposes. Mr. Smith was moved and carefully reburied, in the right spot. I'd actually pretty much forgotten about another particular experience of seeing a corpse. It was not a good experience, and I must have put it away somewhere safe. I didn't recall it until, while taking a break from researching this episode, I was watching a movie that involved a suicide, and it all came flooding back to me. In March of 1993, I was training to become a contract orderly, tasked to sit with palliative patients at Halifax hospitals. One day, while in class, I was pulled out to answer the phone. It was my live-in girlfriend, and she was very upset. She was so distraught that pretty much all she could say was, he's dead, and you have to come home. I tried to ask what was going on, but she was too upset to tell me. I was in Dartmouth at the time, so I had to transit back to the apartment on South Park Street near St. Mary's University, where I was a student at the time. It took around 50 minutes. When I walked into our third-floor apartment, it was in darkness. The drapes were drawn, and there were no lights on. My girlfriend was sitting as far away from the window as she could, and she'd been crying. I asked again what had happened, and she said, someone jumped, and pointed to the window saying, I heard it, and he's right out there. I looked out the window and saw a couple of EMTs, the building's maintenance man, and two police officers standing over the body of a man on the roof of the carport directly below our suite. 
The man was lying on his back. He was not moving. I watched horrified as the man was lifted off the roof and put into a black body bag and carried away. The catastrophic damage to his head was what I recall best. I still see the moment he was lifted up and into that bag like a screenshot burned into my mind's eye. I didn't know the man in life, but I heard later from another resident in the building that he had gone backwards out the window of his apartment on the ninth floor on purpose. I was also later told that the complex had a reputation. Some called it suicide towers, as there had been other previous people who chose to die by suicide in similar ways at that address. Years later, while attending film school, now living with Carol in North Vancouver, I got a job as a security guard. One of my postings was at Vancouver Hospital. It was a grueling job, and I typically walked at least 12 kilometers a night as we had to walk routes through the complex twice, once before lunch and once after. I was shown around the hospital on my first day by the site supervisor who took me to the crypt in the morgue to try and freak me out. The crypt in VGH is more or less just a giant refrigerator packed full with bodies on gurneys awaiting processing and others on steel shelves in some stage of transition, often awaiting pickup by a funeral home. There was also the wall of stainless steel sliding drawers you see in most crime or horror films. You've seen it in the X-Files. I was more fascinated than afraid, although there's always that feeling of recognition and relation that comes with seeing a body. It says, oh my goodness, that's a dead human being there, just like me. The big thing that happened at VGH to me was seeing something that not everybody does. I witnessed a co-worker's death. One night, at the beginning of my shift, I was introduced to a man I'll call Jim Johnson. Jim was a guy about my height with a round red face and curly, strawberry blonde hair. The site supervisor on duty that night took Jim with him to train him on the routes that we walked, just as I'd been shown months earlier. In the wee hours of the morning, a fire alarm sounded on the sixth floor of what was then called the Centennial Pavilion. The expected protocol for security's response to a firearm, regardless of where we were on the campus, was for all guards to run to the site of the alarm. When I received word on my walkie-talkie of the alarm, I was a block away at the BC Cancer Agency on my rounds. I ran to the building and up six flights of stairs to the sixth floor. The reason I had to take the stairs is that during an alarm, the elevators automatically ground themselves to await firefighters. All the other guards had to do the same, including Jim and the site supervisor. They were already on site when I arrived. Jim looked terrible. He was ashen and pouring sweat. I mumbled to the site supervisor that Jim did not look well, but I don't recall a response. Once we checked the floor and determined that it had been a false alarm, the other guards were sent back to their routes and the site supervisor asked me to meet he and Jim on the fourth floor to shut off the alarm. The site soup wanted to show me where the alarm panel was. The fourth floor was an interstitial, mechanical floor for the building accessible only to security, maintenance staff, and records management employees who had a file storage room there on that floor. When I stepped off the elevator on the fourth floor, the site supervisor called me over the radio to assist him in the alarm room. He said that he and Jim were already there, but he needed help. When I entered, when I entered, there was Jim on the floor, gasping for air and turning purple. The site supervisor was performing CPR. Moments later, Jim's bladder let go and I saw him die. 
Despite the efforts of EMTs and a cardiac team from the hospital, Jim died right there due to a massive coronary event. When Jim died, I saw something leave him. I can't explain it, but something clearly perceptible happened. Perhaps it was his eyes. I don't know. According to Wikipedia, quote, a study conducted in 1901 by physician Duncan McDougall sought to measure the weight lost by a human when the soul departed the body upon death. McDougall weighed dying patients in an attempt to prove that the soul was material, tangible, and thus measurable. Although McDougall's results varied considerably from 21 grams, for some people this figure has become synonymous with the measure of a soul's mass. His results have never been reproduced and are generally regarded as either meaningless or considered to have had little, if any, scientific merit. End quote. So perhaps there's no weight to our consciousness, but I know what I saw. One moment Jim was there and the next he was not. The moment of death was very evident to me and it hit me hard. I suffered post-traumatic stress symptoms for some time, including nightmares, bouts of anger, and fear of returning to work at the hospital. I became obsessed with dying at 43, just like Jim was. His wife, who I'd met the day he died, told me that Jim should have never been at that type of work. He was due for a triple bypass operation and had taken the job in security because they were having trouble making ends meet. Jim thought that he'd be sitting on his rump most of the time. He would have at some other site. That was not the case with this one, though. Although I didn't have cardiac issues, as my 43rd birthday approached, my anxiety increased. And for my entire 44th year, I was convinced that that was the year I was going to torque it in. I didn't. But jeepers, that sucked. So how has death touched you, Matthew? What are your experiences with it? Only if you're comfortable talking. Yeah, no. It's on my shoulder right now. No. Um, okay, so I'll talk about this a bit. When I was 16 years old, mm -hmm. I had 10 grandparents. Wow. So because step-grandparents. And... All of my grandparents and all of my great-grandparents. Oh, wow. So from the age of 16 until eventually they're gone, I experienced all of their funerals. Mm. So that's 10 people. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, my father actually died just a few months before I met Justin, my husband. He died quite young. He was about 56 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and I can remember when I visited my father's grave a few years back, being from a small town, I sort of recognized a few names. So I walked through the graveyard mm -hmm. and counted. Yeah. And in that one graveyard counted 40 people that I could remember. Wow. That I knew. Like right. sometimes, you know, some of them were like my great grandparents' friends when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But just in that one graveyard at the time, it was 40 people that I'd known. And, uh, you know, so that was quite fascinating because when you're from a small town, mm -hmm. You, you know, and everyone's in the same, well, there's a few graveyards. There's like the Protestant one, the Catholic one, and the Dutch Reform one, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, ben, joke, Justin jokingly calls me the angel of death mm. because um, it's kind of dark that he calls me that. <laughs> but, um, you know, since I've met Justin, mm -hmm. we've been together for 17 years. Um, I've known essentially 17 people in those 17 years that have died. Wow. And most of them were under 40. Wow. Uh, two brain tumors, heart attacks, four suicides, eight overdoses, and two killed together in one motorcycle accident. Mm. So, and th the youngest was 18, the oldest was 60, but most of them were under 40. So, 
you know, there's been a lot of death in my life. And when that happens, it, when you go to that many funerals, mm. it forces you to accept death as a part of life. If you don't mind me asking, which one other than family mm. hit you the hardest? Um, Keith and Anna, mm. uh, I'd introduce them and they were in a motorcycle accident and died and they're buried on the first anniversary of their wedding. Oh, wow. And I also had a friend's son who was named after me who committed suicide at 18, oh. um, which is hard. And, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of overdoses, my friend Corey here, did you ever meet Corey? I don't think so. When I first moved to Vancouver, he and I started hanging out. He's my first friend in Vancouver. I've only been here for six years. Yeah. And he died of an overdose. Oh, wow. A couple of years after I met him. So they're all hard in a way, right? I think the hardest one for me, um, that wasn't family, um, and wasn't the man who died in front of me was my friend, Mike. And, uh, Mike and I through high school, uh, he was a few years older than me. So he was, uh, the guy who I was like little Mike and he was big Mike, Yeah, you know, and we would just, we just went everywhere together. We hung out all the time, partied together. Uh, we even like Mike went out with a girl. Uh, or I went out with a girl and then Mike went out with the same girl after we broke up kind of thing. It was just like one of those kind of, we were just really close. And Mike, um, he struggled like myself. He struggled with, uh, alcohol mm. addiction and, um, throughout the years he tried to get sober, but couldn't. At one point he was, uh, almost killed in a car accident going the wrong way on the 401. Right. Uh, was hit by a semi, did not die. Uh, but he was just, he could never quite uh, kick the habit. He never quite was able to sober up. And um, about around 10 years ago, actually, he was found in an alleyway, non-responsive in Barrie, Ontario, um, brain dead. Wow. And... His mom, who I loved very much, she's also gone now, uh, and his sister uh, had to sit with him after pulling the plug yeah. on him. Yeah. And he died on Halloween, which wow. is another sort of big anniversary on Halloween yeah. for me. Like Halloween is an important time of year for me for some reason. <laughs> uh, I, was a, I was adopted on Halloween, dark poutine, has its anniversary on Halloween. Mm. Halloween is Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> All, Hallows, All Hallows Eve. And also is uh, the time of year that I remember my friend Mike. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was very hard going back, like, and uh, his, his mom had his ashes put into a little pool table shaped urn. There was like a, it was like a really <laughs> did, specific. Did you go back for the funeral? Um, we had a thing for him the next summer okay. in Nova Scotia. And I saw people there who I hadn't seen in years, all mutual friends of his. And that's mine. always hard. Like I, um, I've lived abroad for mm -hmm. most of my adult life. And, uh, you know, when I first moved, I found myself flying home for weddings, but mm -hmm. eventually I was flying home for funerals. Yeah. And, um, after my father died a number of years ago, my, a couple of years later, my mom met a guy named Gary. Okay. Yeah. And they started seeing each other. Yep. And 
he got ill mm. and um most of the people that died sort of died more quickly but gary was sick yeah. so i had a chance to get home and uh we went to the hospital to visit him and it was the first time i was knew i knew i was saying goodbye to somebody mm-hmm. who was about to go and um as i left the hospital room i was a little bit freaked out and i was crying a bit my my brother was much more stoic and he turned to me and he said oh yeah i forgot that's right you've never been home for the deaths yeah and i think he as soon as he said those words because of the look on my face mm-hmm. like it just sort of struck me in the heart the guilt of not of me realizing my brother sat by the bedsides of all these people and as soon as he said it was out of his mouth you could see him trying to put it back he's like i didn't mean it that way i felt horrible yeah and um you know it's uh you know that was odd um because Mm -hmm. it just made me realize my brother was there yeah for all of them and i never was so what about the afterlife do you believe there is one do you believe we our energy goes somewhere uh and it is conscious in some way or I, I'm kind of a non-dualist. Yeah. Yep. So I think, I literally think we're part of the universe and we always are. Mm-hmm. That our, the atoms in our bodies were forged in the hearts of dying stars. Yes, totally. We are yep. literally the universe. So to me, it's just a part of a process. Yeah. 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 So now probably not conscious at all, but mm. you know, none of us know. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's sort of my solace, the knowing that, um, I am nothing to this universe, but I'm also all of it, you know? Well, there you go. Yeah. So to wrap things up, memento more, folks. That's Latin for remember that you have to die. It doesn't have to be a scary thing, but remembering that helps me to recall that today is the only day that I need to be concerned about. I don't want to miss out on the rest of my life worrying about something that I have no control over. The fact is that life is terminal. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Do that project you've been putting off. Take that risk you've been waffling on. Do that podcast. Write that book. At some point in her career, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote, When I die, I'm going to... When I die, I'm going to dance first in all the galaxies. I'm going to play and dance and sing. End quote. She died in 2004. I hope she's still dancing out there somewhere. Happy Halloween, and that's it for Dark Poutine episode 192, Halloween 2021, Death, the Afterlife, and Things in Between. Let's get to some less spooky voicemails. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Let's listen to our first voicemail. It looks like it comes to us from somebody in Cape Breton. <laughs> Hi there, my name is Melanie and I'm calling from Cape Breton, originally from Port Coburn, Ontario, of all places. Just calling today in regards to today's episode. Um, in 2008, I was 18 years old, and then the Greyhound bus, bus incident happened. And that's where I began my journey of mental illness. I was constantly afraid of strangers, and I was always the type to smile and talk to everyone. And then after that, I felt 
very scared to do so. And throughout the years, it got to the point where I almost didn't even want to leave my house. So then I decided, okay, I can't live like this. So I decided to go to nursing school and focus on mental health. And during the mental health class, it came that whole topic came out. And it turns out that every single student in that class shared the same thoughts on it. That after that point, their lives had changed and they no longer had the same trust in people. So, I mean, it's a big part of our culture now. Everyone knows it, and I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing that people are aware that there could be someone suffering in public. And, um, yeah, it's a very difficult situation, and, I mean, there's a lot that goes on with it, and my opinion or anyone else's opinion doesn't really matter on this subject, but it's really kind of become an eye-opener for a lot of people. And uh, anyone out there who is still struggling and who does still feel feared, just make sure that you reach out and get some help because not everyone is like, there's not every situation that you're going to be in that you're going to find that someone is out there to hurt you. Most times this is very, very rare circumstance. So just encouraging anyone who's suffering to go and find some help. And uh, also, Mike, I wanted to tell you that you're, <sighs> you have, I can't believe you're suggesting to drive um BC all the way to the East Coast again. That drive through Ontario is super, super painful. I just felt like it was never going to end. So if you do decide to do it, good luck. If there's anyone out there who's doing it right now, good luck and make sure to get a lot of rest. Okay. Um, my mandatory closing. Have a bowel movement in your hatch, sirs. Good, good day. Well, a bowel movement in our hats. Um, yeah, I, I thought she was going to go, like, I can't believe you're suggesting, like, and I'm thinking, oh, no, what did I say? <laughs> like driving across the country, you're insane. <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I seriously thought I was going to about to catch shit from somebody. <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, I, I really do want to do it again. And she is right. Ontario seems endless. Really? Oh, my gosh. Well, if you look at it on the map and look at the... Trans Canada Highway on the map. You gotta go. You have to go up and over the lakes. Oh, I know. Yeah, Ontario is about a third of the drive. <laughs> yeah, and then you get into like the traffic in Ontario. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, that's unavoidable. Mm. Uh, through Quebec is kind of bad, but I did most of Quebec and uh, uh, the eastern provinces at night, so mm. it was super easy. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway. That's very cool. And it's cool that somebody in the nursing profession, mental health, Mm. gave us a call. Because isn't it interesting that a lot of people with mental health issues are attracted to psychiatric, the psychiatric professions in some way. Yeah. I find that over and over again. People who have psychological psychological struggles tend toward... Let's get some education here. It's yeah, really kind of, kind of sense, yeah, yeah, it does to me too. I mean, that's why I wanted to get into psychology. <laughs> because I'm a psycho. Wow. You should have like a doctorate in something by now. Right? I should have, a, well, <laughs> I guess maybe a doctorate in sobriety. <laughs> 29 years, it does count for something. I'm a professional sober person. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, yeah, like that sober coach thing. That's a kind of a weird thing. I don't know how I feel about that, but anyway. My friend who's a sober coach? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to our next voicemail. And this one 
appears as though it might be coming from who knows where, uh, probably Ontario. <laughs> hey guys, my name's Anita and I live in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Um, I've been listening to the podcast for a lot of years, took a short mental health break during the pandemic, just couldn't handle future crime for a bit. And so now I'm back at it and kind of trying to get caught up. And I wanted to call because of episode, I think, 120, when you were talking about the daredevils that go over Niagara Falls. Growing up in Niagara Falls, I obviously worked in tourism for a lot of years as a teenager and in my 20s. And I just wanted to bring to light, after having listened to your podcast, I couldn't help but remember what it was like. I worked for the Niagara Parks Commission, which maintains the property down by the falls, and I got to know a lot of the Niagara Parks Police. And the ones who were involved with the rescue and body retrieval of some of these daredevils or suicides that go over. In particular, I remember Steve Trotter, who I believe you mentioned in your podcast. He chose one of his sons for Father's Day weekend as a gift to his father and didn't really give a second thought to the fact that these men and women who needed to come down and rescue him we're giving up their Father's Day weekend and a chance to be with their kids to go and save him. His whole plan relied on the fact that he would get saved quickly because he had a very limited air supply inside his barrel. So he needed to be pulled out. And he didn't really give a second thought to these poor guys risking their lives. It's not an easy thing getting down to that water. There's a lot of rocks. They have to repel down the cliff side. So I think maybe it's just something that we tend not to think about. These daredevils sometimes get glorified and get a little bit of a hero status and there's other people on the other end who have to take care of them after their little son so i don't have a lot of love for them but i do have a lot of love for you guys i appreciate the podcast i think you guys are amazing i'm really really enjoying the addition of matthew and uh keep it up guys all i can say now is go shit your hat have a good one well thank you so much that's awesome and what a great perspective to have after that episode. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one, Matthew, but it was a fun one to do. Um, and uh, some of the writing came from Pierre Burton's book and all that kind of stuff. My Canadian icon, I, I bow to Pierre Burton. <laughs> well, I don't know if I really do that. But anyway, um, thank you so much. Yeah, there are other people. When you're pulling off your stunt... They're on the North Shore Mountains or something like that, uh, and you fall down. There are people who have to risk their lives to come get you. It's kind of... Kind of ridiculous. Right? I, I could hear her windscreen wipers going. Yeah, I know. It sounded like she was under the falls in her car. It did. It sounded like she was either driving under Niagara Falls <laughs> or... There was a big rainstorm there in Ontario, and she was driving on the 401 board and thought, I'm going to call Mike and Matthew. <laughs> I vote that she was right under the falls. Yeah. Yeah, we, we can always hope. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, she's she was able to call, so she doesn't sound she like in, she... She was in the mate of the mist, the boat, and that was the, the, the windscreen. Yeah, waters. there was no jeopardy there. <laughs> anyway, here is another voicemail, and this one... Seems to be coming from somewhere mysterious. I don't know where it is, but I have a feeling it might be from around Niagara Falls again. Hey, Mike and Matthew, my second favorite M&Ms. Hope that you guys are having a terrific week. And I just wanted to say hello 
and how much that uh, we enjoy your incredible podcast and uh, bring up two quick things. The first, not everybody might know what hydro is. Um, I am Canadian, and so I know that that means your utility bill, your energy bill, your power bill. But for our American and international audience, um, there was an episode recently I was binging, and uh, we said something about a guy coming around and reading the hydrometer. Well, hydro, it means water. That's because for a lot of Canadians, our power comes from Niagara Falls, which is hydroelectric power. So anytime that you hear a Canadian say hydro or the hydro bill or the hydrometer, what we mean is power, energy, the utilities. And the second one is I learned this today, uh, the expression to cut someone off at the pass instead of cut someone off at the path. And I never knew that. So I hope you guys are having a terrific day. And I think that the expression is to cut someone off at the pass. And I think that goes back to the Wild West. Um, but I'm not quite sure. So I'm going to look that up. Hope you guys are having a fabulous one. And please, pretty, pretty, pretty please, go take a gigantic steaming shit in your hat. Bye for now. I'm wondering if this person who called is is uh, a teacher of some description. Because I, I like the, I I love these little things though. Mm -hmm. I love them little tidbits. Yes, is cut them off at the pass. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard anybody say cut them off at the path. Do you do you call it hydro out on the wrong side of the country? Where are you from? On the wrong side of the country. <laughs> no, we call it the electricity bill there. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Because I was weirded out when I first heard the you know. I got to pay the hydro bill. And I'm like, why are you paying for water? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't understand, but it's the water that generates the energy that yeah. you're paying for. Yeah. yeah. So it's called hydro over here as well. Isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. 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 BC hydro yeah. is who somebody in your house probably pays Me, a bill. $50 a month. Is that it? Yeah. Well, that's not too bad. I mean, you yeah, know. we're, we're pretty good with energy saving. Well, that's good. And the heat is sort of a uh, water heat. Do you have Steve like on a little treadmill running? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> to generate power? Yeah, no, I would be not having any power if that was the case. <laughs> they say bulldogs are lazy man dogs. Yeah. Well, Steve is definitely a, a good, good egg though. He is. You've spent some time on the couch with him this weekend? All day yesterday. Oh, poor little guy. He must have missed you wow, he did. when you were away in Quebec. And that house, was that where you were staying? Yeah. In Quebec? What, it, a, what a nice place. It's a manoir. It's uh, lovely. And the owner, she's really nice. So I always like to stay there. So like a bed and breakfast kind of thing. Kind of, but they have like... A la France. They actually have like a really nice restaurant Oh, nice. That's open one. Oh, like Faulty Towers. Yeah, in a way, but not, not Faulty. <laughs> not Faulty, no, no Basil. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great little place. Oh, well, there you go. It's a jewel. It's a jewel, I tell you. A jewel. Well, that sounds like a good time. And that's it for voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 ptn We'd love to hear from you regardless of what you have to say. Even if you're going to correct something. That's cool. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, we may not play it. It depends on my mood <laughs> and and how and how much my ego can take that you day. You can be a moody bastard. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. Well, let's move on to Patreon Patreons. and our donut money donors. We don't have any new patrons this week, which is fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> I always panic when I look and I see that we have no new patrons. I just like crap my pants and think, am I going to be able to pay the bills next month? I'll bring you some boiled eggs next Ma- week. Bring me some boiled eggs and visit me beside the dumpster. <laughs> anyway, um, but we do have one donut money donor, and his name is Gordon Bird. Hello, Gordon Bird. And Gordon says... Hello, I was listening to this episode while on a bus. So he's talking about the, <laughs> the bus beheading episode. So glad to do that to you. He said he was leaving Winnipeg, heading north towards northern Manitoba. It wasn't a Greyhound bus, but a smaller bus company. It was a great listen. P.S. I was that guy pooping in the planter. Just kidding. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gordon. Thanks, Gordon. Yeah. If we can get like... One donut money donor a week, we're probably pretty good. That's but, amazing. Uh, I yeah. love that. <laughs> Can you imagine you're getting on a bus and you put your favorite podcast on and it's about that? It's about someone being beheaded yeah. on a bus. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's like watching airplane crash movies on the airplane. I, I don't think they play them. No, they don't. But I think it'd be, I want to do an airline that just does that. Uh, yeah. Or, Yeah. <laughs> just an airline that's just called plane crash airlines <laughs> or whoopsie daisy air <laughs> i had a friend that had a his own little mini airline he had three planes oh his wife thought he had only had two he secretly bought a third one. Oh, and when he used to take people places <laughs> he had a theme song he'd push the button when he was taking off that old band yaz the the british one the only way is up <laughs> oh baby oh gosh <laughs> people are like oh my god uh that sounds like fun i need fun i need some fun in my life matthew i'm, I'm your fun <laughs> apparently um, thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of dark poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine. I don't know. Did I, have I said that? Have I not said that? I'll say I it again. Know. It's fine. Yeah, we'll do it. For one time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, dark at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. My book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly... Thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. I have a promo this week. And is it for my new show? Ooh, let me listen. It's called Supernatural Circumstances, and it's with myself and Morgan Knudsen. Morgan Knudsen. You can find us at supernaturalcircumstances.com, or you can learn more about that show, uh, well... Or you can subscribe to that show on Spotify, iTunes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the usual places. So please check out SupernaturalCircumstances.com, and here's the promo. Hi there, I'm Mike Brown. 
author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals every other Monday for our podcast, Supernatural Circumstances, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and incredible things happening in the world about us. Here's Morgan to tell you a little bit more about the show. In every episode of Supernatural Circumstances, we will take a look at things paranormal, supernatural, and other phenomenon that lie outside the everyday, like the Philip experiment, the dogman phenomenon, and the Wendigo. At the end of each show, I'll give a quick lesson on spiritual health care so you can ensure you're walking toward the highest good while on your journey as a spiritual being having a human experience. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Check out our first full episode of Supernatural Circumstances when it drops on Monday, October 25th, 2021. Then every second Monday, you'll be treated to a new episode of the show. You can follow Supernatural Circumstances on social media and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Supernatural Circumstances is a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to Dark Poutine at darkpoutine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. So how fun is that, Matthew? I know what I'm doing tomorrow night. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so you'll have uh, an episode of not dark poutine to listen to with me on it. Exactly. Yeah, fun. Because I don't listen to this one. Yeah, you, you because you can't, because your voice is in it. Absolutely cannot yeah. listen to this show. You can listen to the old ones, maybe. I don't, I don't know why people don't like listening to me. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to the old ones. No. <laughs> so that's it for this week. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Her name is Elsbeth. Elsbeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elsbeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.